I have the great honor and the joy to introduce to you shortly Sabrina Slater, a, a woman I admire very much um, I know from, and whom I know from my time at Princeton Seminary. Every class at this seminary has one or two or sometimes three, very often young men who did not really grow out of puberty and still make some childish jokes or do silly things on campus. And uh, in the class of 2012-13, I was one of them. <laughs> and uh, we always relied on others, such as Sabrina Slater, who did not laugh at us, but sometimes laughed with us and smiled with us. And um, we had, with Sabrina Slater, one who had a strong sense of calling in her life. And we always looked up at people like Sabrina Slater because um, they uh, lifted um, us up in our spirits. And um, I think she just kept doing this. And this is why she is um, awarded with our um, AAEC Service Award. Um, I just want to tell you some things about Sabrina so you can get to know her better, and then she will talk about it um, during this afternoon. Um, Sabrina Slater um, has a strong sense of calling, even though she herself may say that she received her calling a little bit late in her life. Um, and uh, in the moment she received it, um, it was a moment of great joy and a great pleasure, and um, ever since this calling is the goal of her entire life. She serves a small congregation in Spencer, in the state of New York, um, which is called uh, Christ the King Fellowship, a small congregation in a community in New York that has a calling to serve this community. 42, ye 42 years ago, they started um, a cupboard, um, a uh, a food cupboard, sorry, a word I don't know, um, and I have to find on my sheet. <laughs> and even though it is a small congregation, they managed to raise over $10,000 um, for people in Ukraine to help them. She's the sole pastor of this congregation. Right now, you are doing a sabbatical during this year. During this year. Um, and I will wrap up my introduction with um, just a small word about the spirituality of um, Sabrina. Uh, I had um, the chance to read a little bit about her and she had the chance within one year to do um, the um, pilgrimage of St. James in Spain. Um, she did a um, Ignatian retreat um, within 40 days, so the big one. Everybody who knows Ignatian spirituality knows there's a small one and there's the big one. And uh, to do the big one is something else. So I admire um, this because um, she, uh, she uh, had an, a formulation that I have never heard before and that really touched me. She said that this year where she was able to do um, these two and a foot washing um, on the Fiji Islands was a year that she would call a merry year because it was a year that placed her on the feet of Jesus where she experienced something um, of his work um, within this world. And I found that a very moving and touching formulation. Thank you for that. Um, I ask you in welcoming Sabrina Slater Thank you for everything you did to this community and to us. Welcome and thank you very much. I get special help because I need special help, praise God. Okay, so when it's just, oh, okay, cool. We'll get to that in a minute, don't worry. Um, first, I am going to check and see how churchy and how saved all y'all are, okay? 
So let's let's see what happens. God is good. And all the time. Praise God. Y'all are saved. Praise God. Um, But praise God because God is good. And thank you, Eustace, for the introduction. Um, Thank you for the Alumni Association Executive Council um, invitation to receive this service award, uh, which, to be honest, I was unaware of until I learned I received it. Praise God. but it is incredibly uh, humbling and a great honor to be able to receive it. And thank you all who are here, as well as all of the PTS family who are leading reunion, all the PTS family who are leading PTS currently, those who have um, showed up and just continue the good work of allowing folks to be shaped here. And y'all, it is all fun and games and joy and delight, receiving an award, right up until that time when you get to speak, right? (laughs) Yes. Even if and when we trust God, and even though it is a very fun and friendly invitation to speak, don't we just feel that pressure the expectation to be just right with our words, to say exactly the right thing, to actually earn that award we are being given, and essentially to be enough. Or is that just me? But hearing some sighs, I don't think it's just me. And also, If we consider all of the years that Jan Ammon faithfully loved us as the minister of the chapel, it must have been for some reason that she annually would preach that imposter sermon because some of us continue to struggle. So while it is not Sunday morning, we are in Monday afternoon, amen. While it's not Sunday morning and this isn't a sermon, or is it? I need us to do three things together as we begin. So first, and if you want to hear the words first, it's okay, because then I'm going to tell you to really do it. First, we're going to stretch. Now, every Sunday near the beginning of worship and also any time we have adult study, think uh, adult Bible study or Sunday school, I invite my folks to stretch to open ourselves up, to shake it out, to loosen up, to drop all the things we bring in with us, and to also open us up to what God has for us today. Now, you have all stretched. Good job. You're a good congregation. Um, And fortunately, I don't think we hurt any of our neighbors. Amen. Okay. All right. So we've stretched. Now, the second thing I want us to do is to breathe. Now, you can breathe in and hold it and breathe out and hold it. Or maybe you just want to slow the in and out a little bit. Or maybe you want to try something new like Breathing in one nostril and out the other. And it's funny, but if you try it, it helps to still you and to focus you. So I invite you to breathe. And as you are breathing in, breathe in the grace of God. And as you are breathing out, breathe out the distractions. And as you are breathing in, breathe in the love of God. And as you are breathing out, breathe out the worries. And as you are breathing in, breathe in more of the life of God. And perhaps eventually as you breathe out, you'll breathe out God's blessings all around you. So breathe in God and breathe out blessings. Keep breathing. And as you continue breathing, please pray with me. Lord God, you are good. 
and you are good to us. Thank you. And thank you for the ministry and the blessing of Princeton Theological Seminary. Thank you for all those who have come before us, all those who have led this seminary, all those who have prayed for us. Thank you, God, for how this place has been a formative space and a thin space for so many in heeding your call. Continue to bless Princeton. Give the seminary great wisdom in guiding and nurturing those who are following you. And God, ministry and walking with and creating with and loving with you is sacred and beautiful and it's hard and exhausting. God, in fact, this beautiful gift of life you give us can be quite draining. So God, please breathe into each of us in a fresh way right now. Anoint this time together and let it be restorative, joy-filled, and redemptive. God, may stories and reflections invite us into your presence so that we might have and know the fullness of joy and the deep knowing that indeed you love us, you see us, you call us, and you are always with us. God, please never stop speaking to us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, pictures make a presentation better, right? Yeah, thank you. And since this is my story, um, I want to show and tell a little bit. So up on the screen, we have my family. Oh, guys, I think I have a clicker. Uh, not the clicker, this. Oh! <gasps> It's the first time with one of these. Use the arrows on the computer, Sabrina. Oh, yeah, thank you for reminding me. Okay. I always need help. Okay, guys, this is my family. Think of it as one of the pictures, how it started, how it's going. <laughs> um, this is Dad. I know him as Dad, Mr. Slater, Bill Slater. This is Mom, Selena Slater, Mom. This is my brother, little bro bro, Matthew Slater, or Matt for everyone else. This first picture, the young picture, is us at our grandma and grandpa's house for family pictures. And the most recent, the more recent, is a picture of us following the celebration of life for one of my uncles. And you can see, I hope you can see, that we are laughing, laughing pretty good. Um, and it's because that baby I'm holding is not my baby. It's my... <laughs> There you go, you all get it now. It's my cousin's baby. Um, and people were making comments, of course, about folks are gonna see this picture and come up with a lot of stories because you're holding this baby, which they're gonna be like, who's that? Wait, when did they join the family? But this picture, these pictures of my family is a picture of folks who have and who continue to shape who I am. They taught me how to love people they taught me that my identity is centered in Christ and how ministry is a way of life that all of us are called to. And family, of course, is more than just blood relatives, but it's also that extended family. My dad's one of five and mom's one of 11. And it's generational. It's not just the generation we're part of. And while my family, my ancestors, are not Presbyterian. My grandparents on both sides were founding members of churches, churches that still stand to this day. On my mom's side, they were founding members of a Church of God in Christ congregation. And on my dad's side, they were founding members of a non-denominational Bible-based um, church. And I know from stories and from living that I have been covered in generations of prayer from both sides of the family. And I have had modeled for me the ability to have a love-centered debate on scripture 
and its interpretation when family gathers around saying, but it doesn't say this in the word, but it does say this, but that's outside of scripture and we're still family. So I got to model that you interact and engage with scripture and it's okay and it can be pretty fun sometimes when it's based in love. And I was shown that living a life of faith can be full and fun and vibrant. My family shaped me and shapes me still. Now we have before, as in before Princeton Theological Seminary, because most of us have a full life, or in certain ways, a full life before we ever arrive here. And before I heard the call to seminary, because it was later, y'all, I was just living my life, I, that's what I wrote, I was living my life, um, and I was working in higher education. I was serving and worshiping in different communities where I felt God led me to be, and in work, I was able to help lead students who were learning about HIV and AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa with a journey actually over to Kenya. And on my second, actually before my second trip journey doing that, I heard in my spirit God being like, it's time to step away from this. <laughs> but y'all, <clears throat> who steps away from something they're really good at that is like fun and life-giving and is international travel that's paid for? <clears throat> who does that? God, I have thoughts. Um, and <clears throat> so I sort of said to God, mm, I'll think about it. No, I won't. Um, and put it to the side. And maybe it's just me. But God sure has a way of crunching certain things when God's like, I told you clearly, and you are just playing around ignoring. And so God sure did crunch in a certain way. I said, fine. I, I'm sorry for saying no, God. Um, yes, I'll step away. And in the stepping away, I thought to myself, you know, this was a merging of my faith life and my work world in a beautiful way. But I wonder what it would look like to be able to step into something just based on my faith. You know, an adult mission trip. And so I started looking, and it was a surprise to me that I found my way to Mercy Ships. And I say it was a surprise because Mercy Ships I knew about, and I also knew I wasn't a doctor. So I didn't think that I had the opportunity to serve with them. And God, in the way that God alone can, opened up the doors and windows for me to be added to a team. When they told me, basically, it's too late, and in my spirit, I was like, I'm going. <laughs> I'm going on this trip. And a day or two later, I was. And while I had said no, I had quit serving in a certain way to go to Kenya, Turns out, God, as only God can, um, completely financed the trip by people who knew me sponsoring me to go. So I got another international trip that was completely around my faith and with an organization I never thought I could serve with, Mercy Ships. And I got to make this map of Africa freehand uh, in the Hope Center, which was the place off site for those who had had surgery and the bible verse the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so that folks as they were healing had beauty around them and the word of god also i was impressed by god it required me to say no to self and yes to God. And it didn't make sense. This was before I got to seminary. And then, oh, so sad. Guys, okay, it's really funny because it looks like it's a bad picture. You could come see it later. It's just the Pope, it's fine. Um, <laughs> it's okay, we weren't cursing at each other, I promise. Uh, but 
I, thanks, Ruth. So this is the after. A lot of things happened in between these pictures, right? Um, God revealed that I was supposed to come to Princeton Theological Seminary and, um, and leave a job that I loved. And God surprised me in many ways while I was here. And I got to graduate. And as Eustace mentioned, the Mary year, I received the Parrot Pulpit Fellowship. And I went on a journey around the world where I sat at the feet of Jesus to be ministered to before I was in full-time ministry. And after all of that, including graduation, I had an opportunity to study with folks from around the world at the Bolse Ecumenical Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. And at the end of our time studying together, which was a beautiful experience, we got to go to Rome and the Vatican. And we got to listen to Pope Francis speak. And then for the first time ever, our group got to have a group picture taken. And I got to be the person who handed Pope Francis chocolate. <laughs> That's right, I got to hand him the chocolates. And as I did, in my broken Spanish, because I'm not fluent, I told Pope Francis, thank you. Thank you for your life and your ministry. And then I did something else. Uh, in broken Spanish, I asked Pope Francis if he would dance with me. I did, and people thought I wasn't going to do that, but I told my colleagues, if I get to like, give him something, I'm going to ask him to dance. And so I was so shocked when they're like, Sabrina, you asked him to dance. Of course I did. I told you. Um, they thought I thought you were joking. No, I was honest. And here's the thing. Now, he at first thought I asked if our group could dance, so he's like, yeah, of course. And then I'm like, no, no, us. And he laughed, and he touched my cheek. That's the other picture. And he's like, no. Um, <laughs> but isn't it fun what cameras do? Because it sure looks like we're dancing, right? <clears throat> And people after even like, you're the one who danced with the Pope. You're like the Pope's wife. Um, so, <laughs> and it's funny, and I love movement, and I love dance. But the reason why I asked him to dance was actually because there's so many people in the world who can't move and who can't dance. And movement and dance are forms of prayer. And so while my... Spanish is clearly not good enough to say all of this very quickly to Pope Francis. I wanted him to dance with me as a way of dancing for all those who can't and hoping for their liberation, liberation that we heard about in the sermon earlier, right? So I asked the Pope to dance, and it was for a purpose, and it sure was fun, too. Ordination. So this is after hanging out with Pope Francis. He couldn't make it to the ordination service. I did invite him. Um, but, um, and I still am very committed to the ecumenical nature of God's church because it is ecumenical. And perhaps it's also interfaith, right? But um, after discerning and praying about where I would serve, uh, serve as a pastor, I began serving uh, a church, and after I was there four months, I got ordained. And I got ordained at my home church. This is my home church, though it's not the sanctuary I grew up in, okay? This is my home church in Spokane, Washington, Hamblin Park Presbyterian Church. And this picture, these pictures of ordination, was the living out of the baptismal vows that this church took to me when I was a kid and said, I love Jesus and I want to be baptized. And I held them to their prayers, right? When I was in seminary here and went back to visit and talked to them, gave an update, I said, you guys are still committed to praying for me and supporting me and nurturing me. And they did. They were faithful to their call to me. And so it thrilled my heart to be able to be ordained in my home church where I was baptized and um, even to have the home pastor who was no longer serving there after decades of faithful service 
to give the charge to the newly anointed, the same man who had baptized me, the same man who he, his family lived down the street from us and his son was in my grade at school and we had our graduation parties together, the same man who was that annoying voice that God used to say, huh, you're thinking about um, seminary? You're thinking about divinity school? Have you thought about ordination? We'd love for you to pray about that. Pastor Ken, goodness. But also, this, this moment, the laying on of hands, right? That's my dad. My dad, a ordained ruling elder, got to lead the laying on of hands for me. And I'm confident my mom is in the mix, too, laying on of hands as an ordained deacon. It was great joy to get to be ordained in my home church. And it sure was nice after that service was done. And when I caught my breath, I left home in Washington to go home to New York State to Christ the King Fellowship Presbyterian Church, where perhaps the only thing bigger than their name are there, and dare I say, our hearts and personalities too. We are a small church membership in the 30s, which is to say we are like so many churches, full of different folks from different backgrounds with different politics and different thoughts on so much who have decided to love Jesus in Spencer, New York. And they have discovered, they discerned together that they wanted a full-time pastor to serve them after they had finished mostly grieving their long-term pastor the beloved pastor who served them for 31 years and died unexpectedly, and after they had had some heartache and some hardships, and after they weren't quite sure they had enough money, well, they were, they were sure they had enough money for a full-time pastor for three years. I got there in 2017. They still pay me, praise God. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the fun thing. No one who knew me, no one who had helped nurture me along the way thought that I should say yes to Christ the King Fellowship. They didn't because it didn't make sense. I had been, by the grace of God, around the world. I had engaged with these different folks. I had asked the Pope to dance. I like people, usually. Um, Always, you know, sometimes. Sometimes. And then Spencer, though I think last year was different, we still have at the local high school like seven-man football. Y'all, I thought this was a thing of old. It's not. We don't have a proper stoplight. We do not have a pharmacy. The closest hospital is a half an hour away. Most of my folks go across the border to Pennsylvania to receive care. I walk to work usually. And folks know who you are. You might imagine that I stand out in such a community. Um, But they know you so much so that, um, as I said, I walk to church usually. And somebody, not at our church, at another church in the community, said to one of our members, like, is your pastor there on uh, Sunday mornings, you know, doing their job? Uh, Because my car was parked at my house. And they know that because this is my house and that's my car. And they're like, the car's still there. And it's about time to be at worship. Like, is she she there? And they said, yes, she usually walks to church, you know. So I'm known, but it's this small community. And it's beautiful. We get to grow together and love together. And when I said yes, I felt it was because God said, this is where you are to go. I was comfortable and confident in that, even though everybody literally said, are you sure? And I said, I think so. 
even the church was like, are you sure you can live in this small of a community? I don't know, never have before. It was the right answer then. And every day since, it's become more and more of the right answer. So much so that I had the, um, the grace of getting to do the funeral for the widow of that beloved pastor who served that church and really the community for 31 years. What an honor. But I had friends who said, ooh, the widow is on like the calling team? Are you sure you should go? I think so. This, there are more stories, and I'm around. Ask them if you want. But as I was thinking about what to say, it became clear to me how good God is. And every time I have been willing to say yes to God, I sure have been astounded with what that looked like in the end. Now, it's been fun. Oh, I should point this out. Look, you guys, we're like having a good time. This is adult Bible study. We just have fun. Sometimes I poke jokes. They often don't like the scripture. It's okay. <laughs> but every time I've said yes to God, even though it's been hard at times, heartbreaking at times, cost a lot at times, it has been really beautiful. And I've experienced things and been in places like right here, right now, that I never, ever imagined would be the story of my life. And it is hard out there in the world, right? And so I, I just imagine and I encourage us all, though, to reflect upon our own lives and how good God has been because we need the reminders and to give perhaps too much reality. Last week was a hard week for me. On one day, I had a dear friend going for brain surgery while another great friend was having a baby. And 10 minutes before my friend went in for this unexpected brain surgery, and praise God, she is doing great, somebody who had no idea, who I hadn't talked to in a long time, had me in their spirit and felt the need to call. And I answered because you do not not answer that phone call. And they said, how's it going? You're in my spirit. And I told them my friend's about to have brain surgery. And they said, I'll be praying. What's their name? That's the goodness of God. I did not want to go to work that day. But it was another day to go to work. But I was blessed in the showing up because if I hadn't been at work, I wouldn't have seen that call. I would not have answered the phone. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And in the time that we share, maybe share with each other just how good God has been to you. Because I know God's been good to me. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sabrina. Oh my goodness. Um, my name is Reverend Alex Evangelista. I am one of, I am the co-vice chair of the Alumni Association Executive Council with uh, Karen, who's over here. It is, um, your story really reminded me, as God's people, we know about right place and right time, because God shows up. How many of us know about the wrong place and the wrong time? <laughs> yeah, good. We were at the 225th General Assembly, and this happened to me when I heard, and Alex can teach us salsa. <laughs> salsa dancing? What, a bunch of Presbyterians? Is that decent? Is that in order? Salsa dancing has been such a part of who I am, and I was encouraged to be myself. I was encouraged to bring my joyful self into this beautiful space. And I think it takes a unique leader 
to empower others to recognize that their unique gifts that come to the table enriches all of our fellowship. How many others has Reverend Ruth encouraged and mentored the amount of lives that she has touched? There's so many churches from Southern California where she served as executive presbyter and to here in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia where she's the first person of color as in the role of executive presbyter in their 300 plus year of history. The many people, the many churches, the many people she's mentored and coached who have felt the love, the joy, and the support that the Reverend Ruth Faith Santana Grace has had. I also want to share a quick note how she continually reminds me that we are all connected. All our destinies are intertwined. Her father was one of the founding members of Nuevas Fronteras, Iglesia Presbyteriana in Plainfield, New Jersey. This church that took me in and it's the reason why I'm Presbyterian. She continues this legacy of her father and she has these eyes of being able to see the interconnected web, the interconnected destinies that we all hold. And she does this as she continues this legacy of honoring the faithfulness of those who have come before us while also loving deeply the people she serves in the moment right now and also trusting the next generation. She has eyes to see how God is moving yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so her story, and she is a bearer of many, many stories, infused into how God is moving in her own story, we have the opportunity to hear a glimpse of her story today. So it's for this reason that I'm excited to introduce our second presenter of the story of our lives, the executive presbyter of the Presbytery of Philadelphia, the recipient of this year's Distinguished P.T. Sem Alumni Award. Please join me in welcoming the co-moderator of the 225th General Assembly, the Reverend Ruth Faith Santana Grace. I'm getting used to uh, standing for the office of the moderator. For those who are not Presbyterian, it's part of a tradition that is centuries old, or at least decades old. I think Bill is helping me. All right. Well, as we get ready for this. Um, I'm just on a blank slide. Arrow down. Okay. So first of all, I just want to say, Sabrina, we met when you were here in seminary, and I knew then as we made our way to that general assembly in a pretty adventurous trip um, that you were the gift to the church. And a few years later, you continue to be this extraordinary embodiment of God's grace. My voice is not sore, it does not hurt. It's a vocal dysphonia, and um, it is what has threatened my ability to express itself, but I continue to speak on and not be silenced by it. So receiving this honor really makes one consider the chapters of one's life, as Sabrina says, like, Okay, how does one put your entire life in 20 minutes? Oh, Dale will be happy. <laughs> Especially in this context, that a large part of my journey, given the spaces I dared ventured into or was called into by a God I often resisted, I wrestled with this feeling of being unseen, and at times even unable. 
On the outside, it's clear that I look really well adjusted. <laughs> but there was this constant cultural whisper that threatened my ability to see myself as God sees me. Fortunately, there was another constant voice in my life, one that was defined by a light that continued to make its way in me and through me, encouraging me through my reticence to lean into opportunities before me that I might never have imagined for myself. It's that God vision, Dennis Olson, far bigger than our vision. That Holy Spirit light has somehow continually made its way through whatever vulnerabilities and insecurities haunted me. Perhaps you're late. Where the world whispered no, threatening to contain or entomb me in the darkness of cultural assumptions, the light framed by my faith spoke louder. It drew me into new spaces, allowing me to see possibilities, to see the gifts God had placed within and around me. It never took away the pain of the loss, the disappointments, the grief, right? You know that. But it allowed me to see beyond that pain, inviting me to lean in. It illuminates who I continue to be and become, which is why my story is defined by lights, defying darkness. I am a New Yorican, a descendant of the Puerto Rican diaspora in New York City from the early 1950s. I was born to two adventurous souls in the middle there, Felix and Carmen, who met on the mainland in their 20s and would together raise three girls, myself, that was me, little chunky there, um, and my two sisters, Diana and Carol, the middle one with Down syndrome. With eighth and fifth grade educations, they somehow took on a new world with church their faith and education being foundational to everything they did and their hope for us. At the age of 40, my dad would go to college and seminary to be ordained a Presbyterian pastor. My mom would have her own journey, a small business owner, certificates and nursing assistance, food service, whatever she could do to keep validating who she was intended to be. And she stuck off to get her high school equivalency. But that was their story. Early in my journey, different than Sabrina, before the age of eight, I experienced sexual abuse. along with the power of secrets and darkness that take hold of our young psyches, especially in cultures and church systems that deny or keep the pain into silence, right? There was a darkness that threatened to overcome the light that God created within me. In fifth grade, we moved to a working class suburb in Queens, New York, pursuing the ultimate American dream. Frankly, it was a good life at a great church community. But the American dream did unwittingly nurture a bifurcation about my identity and my longing to belong somewhere, but uncertain where. Church was in Spanish. The rest of my life was not. Uncertainty in one's identity causes great unrest, friends. 
relating greatly to parts of the story of In the Heights. I went to college, dropped out, and there was a season of failures and disappointments that framed the narrative that brings me to my life. I had not yet understood the complexities of that dark thread that I carried. That was my reality for the first 20 to 25 years. Somehow the lights of my parents and their unwavering love would help to find the darkness, making them foundational to my pilgrimage, a pilgrimage I did not share with them until I was in my 40s. My mom died about six years ago, my dad two decades ago. I still miss them, but I'm glad I was able to recognize, sometimes we don't get to do this with our parents, able to recognize the courage that they embodied throughout their life and their witness. Now, while some of us are blessed with one set of parents, I've been blessed with two. At the age of 25, I walked into a living room to help with a congressional campaign. I did not do it because I was that interested. I had, I had been dumped by a guy, and I needed a distraction. <laughs> Let me be clear. I was welcomed at the door by a snarky 10-year-old who would own my heart, Melissa, the one to the right there hugging me. Her parents, Jack and Miriam, as I claimed her, would claim me as their own. That's Jack and Miriam in the middle, Miriam and Jack, and their mostly biological family with their two orphans that they adopted. Um, Miriam is here today. Their Puerto Rican New Yorkum of network was a who's who of who's who. <laughs> it was extraordinary. I didn't even know such people existed. I was so innocent at that time. From New York State Supreme Court justices, hospital presidents, doctors, principals, and the list went on, campaign managers. Jack was an attorney who served in presidential, gubernatorial, mayoral appointments and staffs. Miriam, a special ed teacher, a small business owner, the queen of hospitality. Jack died this summer, thankfully, after General Assembly. And it was Michael Livingston, who was my campus minister here, who stood with me as we made our final farewell to Jack at Riverside Church. My understanding of who I was urged with a sense of pride. Are these really my people? Has God placed them in my life? I realized how important it was, people of faith, to be claimed in an identity that's clear. These were all lights that God placed in my life to find the darkness. Working diligently, committed to providing voices of hope where people were struggling with economic injustice, providing voices who were never heard, providing a face to those who were never seen. Well, my world exploded with possibilities, and I, too, was very happy minding my business. <laughs> I won a National Urban Fellowship. I moved to D.C. But this second foundation built on the first one would be what would offer me a defiance to the limitations imposed upon us by the culture. This season of light broke through with a vengeance. Those reflectors of light, Jack and Miriam, along with Felix and Carmen, were incarnationally with me through it all. Through it all. And 30 years ago, almost, at graduation, at ordination, at the birth of our son, Dakota, they've been with me through Europe, California. What great companions 
God has placed in our lives that we don't claim. Now coming a pivotal chapter before PTS would occur in 1983 when I met an American who lived and worked abroad in Italy. I was in DC and frankly I was like, he's getting paid for living abroad? I wonder how I can do that. <laughs> Well, Edward, who's here today, and I would embark on a new kind of adventure. All right, so that's this picture. <laughs> on a new kind of adventure, I would go to Italy, write a new chapter, learning Italian at the age of 30, with Edward and his son David. That chapter would begin to build on my political bridge building of DC while introducing me to the American church in Florence and in Rome, where I was invited to preach my very first sermon, foreshadowing of God's plans, apparently. Because the seminary was not on my agenda. Coming to Princeton, meeting with then President Gillespie, would be a journey more like a wilderness. I didn't come with a plan. I didn't come with a vision of what I wanted to do. I hid behind, I think I'm gonna do a PhD. You know, that's what we do when we come to Princeton the first year. <laughs> Let's tell the truth. <laughs> we had lost a daughter at birth. And looking back, I think I really came here just seeking language to articulate a faith that I did not fully understand that was so present in my being that I could not explain. I frankly wanted to offer language to others that spoke of a God who was relentlessly loving, relentlessly pursuing us, relentlessly bringing us back calling us back right to that place of possibilities. And I frankly resented the God being portrayed in the media. That was my motivation. This institution with its historic contradictions and institutional imperfections offered that gift to me I will forever be thankful to Dr. Damaliori for helping me find language to talk about who God was and is. To Dennis Olson, who although he triggered trauma in me today when he brought up Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> but for Dr. Olson for framing our life in covenant community in a way that will for, has forever shaped my almost 30 years of ministry. And for Jane Dempsey Douglas, for an extraordinary woman pioneer who became friends, who served with my son Dakota as a youth elder at Claremont. I never thought I'd have someone come home and say, Jane is so cool, mom. I called Dr. Douglas and said, I was terrified, he thinks you're cool. <laughs> and then finally, Geddes Henson, who reminded me that leaning to get beyond our institutional failures were just part of our journey, and to embrace them and to keep moving beyond them. Our son Dakota was born here. to the girls. Our son Dakota was born here. He, along with Edward, have been constant counter-narratives to the whispers in the darkness, bringing creative boldness and encouragement, at times in a very pushy way, into my life. <laughs> they are the embodiment of lights that God places along the way. As we tried to open up worlds for our son, like all our kids, he would open up even more worlds to us. I am so fortunate today to add to my family system these extraordinary grand girls, me and Sophia, 
And today I am part of a family tapestry made up of Latinos, Caucasians of all walks of life, African Americans, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, and Hawaiians, each came in claiming a central part to my story. So today I stand in this surreal space, in some ways really confident in whom I am, and in other ways still in awe of standing here and where I find myself today. I'm so grateful for the ultimate light that continues to break into the darkness that calls us to be lights in the world. And that light has schooled me in a few things that I thought I'd share real quickly. It's called my 10 top lessons. So healthy spiritual and emotional intelligence is not a moment, people, right? You know it. It's a lifetime movement. Lift up your voice. That's just biblical. Don't put it under a bushel. Curiosity and joy are essential food for our souls. We get so stuck. We need to be curious and bring joy in what we do. And friends, Presbyterians, Book of Order, Zealots, being right is overrated. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> Love the people you serve. You heard Sabrina. When I went to the Presbytery of Philadelphia, people warned me, do not go there. They eat their young, and that's a direct quote. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> I didn't meet those people. I've been blessed by those people. And I hope that for most, I've been a blessing to them. I have a whole crew here. Um, but and, and in California, the same thing. If you love your people, they will pilgrimage with you almost anywhere. I mean, I have great stories. Emotional, relational capital is foundational to building impossible dreams. When we celebrated our 300th, we were crazy. We said we were going to raise $300,000. We would gather more than 1,000 people, and we were going to give this money to efforts in the city of our birth. You know what I was told. Presbyterians don't do that. I'm going to spare you the story. But when we gathered on that Saturday morning for three hours, 1,700 people showed up. And it was an extraordinary affirmation of who we're called to be when we dare call one another. Almost $400,000 were raised that did not impact anyone's budget. Uh, trust the next generation stopped this. Oh, they need more experience, right? I'm like, when they come in, okay, here. So come on, we need you in here. We grow while we grow. We can't grow while we wait. And this is the moment God has given us. We too often romanticize the slavery of Egypt. We, we romanticize leeks, onions, and garlic. That's really bad news. <laughs> this is the moment we've been given, right? So what will we do with this moment? And with tomorrow's promise to nobody. So this is it. Everything else is a deflection. Feed your body and your soul. I'll show you how I do it in a second. And just keep looking to the light. Keep looking to the light to break through the darkness. Because as we read loudly in the Gospel of John, the darkness has not, does not, and will not overcome it. So, so this is how I stay sane. I kickboxed. Everybody in my presbytery knows I kicked box. And they're very happy I kicked the bag. Um, I swim. I love the ocean. I was on a bicycle, a motorcycle ride just last week. And then this was in Scotland. I got to be trained in Harry Potter's world flying a broom. 
<laughs> it's a great picture, right? Like, I'm really up in the air. That's not a back, back screen. And then what's next? God's not done with me. God's not done with you. And as you hear from the song at Moana, see the line where the sky meets the sea? It calls me. So may God continue to call us all. I want to thank you for your, the privilege of your time and your hearts being here today for the continuation of what you're doing in your lives, reflecting that light of Christ. We do have something to give out because that's who I am. Um, so my Brenton, so before you leave, we'll put it on here and you can pick up a crystal, which hopefully will reflect the light and it's a light that's not like these white lights that stand over us. It's the light of, like the aurora borealis, a light that can never be contained, that dances, that whispers, that just moves in unexpected ways in our lives. So I hope these little crystals will reflect some of that movement and you might take it home with you today. But thank you all. Thank you.